Hello and welcome to another episode of the Psychosocial Distancing Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Daniel Chadbourne, and with me as always is Thomas Brooks. Hello, hello. We're back. <laughs> We're totally back after that, that, that week-long hiatus from last episode. <laughs> if you listen to last episode, uh, we, we are kind of doing these short-form interviews, so we're kind of recording all of this in, you know, in retrospect. Yes. Um, and so last week, we talked about psychobiography. Mm-hmm. This week, we're moving into kind of another a variation, um, but it's not a, a, a psychological deep dive into the other. It is a ethnographic deep dive into the self. Mm-hmm. So we're we're back to discuss more qualitative research, and uh, we're going to talk about autoethnography. Yes, we are. And similar to last week with our psychobiography, I was humbled and excited, and just absolutely love talking to both of these guests, and very grateful for them in terms of like helping us meet uh, time zone differences. Mm-hmm. Um, Dr. Uh, Poandari is from Indonesia, so we had a wonderful time trying to coordinate our schedules in that way and then dr yeah. gillespie uh was that is in uh seattle i believe or somewhere in the pacific northwest and so that was a little bit easier but they were both wonderful to have on and to ask questions about um we had a little bit of a hiccup with dr gillespie yes yeah that that interview will end just a little short um you know good old-fashioned small town local internet yes just crashed who apparently are in cahoots with big ag so Uh, oh yes (laughs) because yeah so this is an interesting like really interesting combination of guests too because when we talk about autoethnography uh dr porandari is is dealing with um more kind of personal um interpersonal with the people the the, the Pooley foundation uh, that she works with uh, that that just hit twenty years, mm-hmm. um, and and the the great work that they do that they're kind of like looking at themselves and the processes and 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 whatnot. So it's a very it's a very human mm-hmm. <laughs> autoethnography. Um, and yeah, the auto refers to the human collective rather than necessarily the self in that case. Right, right, and and then then uh, Dr. Gillespie is is looking at. Um, autoethnography like an interspecies ethnography mm-hmm. or an interspecies autoethnography um kind of looking at animals and and their environments and like like an ethnographic approach but mm-hmm. also through like the interactions between in, in her case backyard chickens mm-hmm. and herself and what mm-hmm. it means to to have chickens in like the middle of an urban environment and all of these, you know, these questions that that can arise with that, and, and like, mm-hmm. what it might mean, and what it might say on a societal level. It's just so, so fascinating. These, these kind of deep dives, and so that's where the kind of big egg, because she does a whole lot of work, and we'll we'll talk about that uh, when we yes. get to our, inter- our interview with her uh, about her work uh, with you know issues regarding uh, the cattle industry and mm-hmm. uh, mass big egg farming. Mm-hmm. So. <laughs> Thus, Big Ag taking our our internet down. <laughs> We're gonna have to go back to talking about conspiracy theories if we keep on with this. So, All right, we need to do like we need to do an ethnography about ourselves integrating and interpreting the world 
through conspiracy lenses. Yeah, we could we yeah. could write it kind of tongue in cheek, but oh, maybe, maybe. I mean, irony is the first step to sincerity, Daniel. <laughs> right. Big guys listening. Maybe we need to do a personal autoethnography for our hundredth episode. That would be cool. What sure. it means to do, uh, yeah, no. So, I think uh, before we ramble, we should get into our interviews. Yeah, um, and then we will come back because we have lots of thoughts about autoethnography that we have learned through these two incredible scholars. So, we will we'll see us in just a second. We'll see you. Yes, in about. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I'm very excited to learn about your research and learn about autoethnography. Um, before we get into the questions, could you share with us a little bit about yourself? Where are you working? What research do you find interesting? And anything else you think we should know? Yeah. Uh, thank you, uh, Thomas and Daniel. It is a pleasure to meet and chat with you. Hope uh, both of you are in good health today. Uh, my name is Elizabeth Christy Purwandari. You can call me Christy. My main job is uh, as a lecturer at the Faculty of Psychology at Universitas Indonesia. Uh, my concerns are uh, mental health issues, gender issues, sexuality, and violence prevention and intervention. For research, I am more into qualitative research methods. And apart from teaching and conducting research, I also have activities in the field. Together with Livia Iskandar and some friends, we founded Puli Foundation. Puli is an Indonesian term, which means to recover. The focus of its activities is on violence prevention and intervention, trauma handling, and psychosocial empowerment in the community. This July, uh, this year, Puli will be 20 years old. Uh, together with several friends, I also established a legal aid institution to help women in West Java. This is only a second year of its activity, so we will still have a lot to catch up uh, to be able to work well. And that's about me. Excellent. Well, congratulations about the uh, Puli Foundation. That's very exciting. Thank you. I, I guess we could begin with what autoethnography is. Um, and so I, I guess, could you explain what narrative research is and sort of how it fits into psychology? Yeah. Um, narrative research is one type of qualitative research and qualitative research generally does focus on narratives, right? Because uh, it doesn't deal with numbers. But the specific feature of narrative research is that it is a technique or a research method that uses stories or storytelling activities as instrument of inquiry. And the stories are more specifically in first-person accounts of experience. It does not mean that it only uses oral or written stories since it could also involve maybe pictures, photographs, paintings uh, that, that present a story. Uh, some will explain that narrative research uh, emphasizes the aspects of analysis, which is narrative in nature. How it is related to psychology? Well, psychology is concerned with human behavior in a broad sense, including human thoughts, how we experience and feel about life and specific events we face 
In short, psychology often deals with subjectivity and intersubjectivity aspects of us. Uh, mainstream psychology is dominated by quantitative research approach, but actually, in my opinion, it requires a, a plural perspective as well, including narrative approach to understand a human being. Very interesting. Yeah, it, psychology does not, as you say, the mainstream is uh, tends to go quantitative. Uh, could you explain to us uh, what exactly an autoethnography is and what are the goals of autoethnography? Uh, before explaining what is et uh, autoethnography, maybe it is easier for me to explain first what is ethnography. Ethnography is a type of uh, qualitative research that involves immersing ourselves in a particular community or organization to observe their behaviors and interaction uh, closely. Usually there will be an extensive fieldwork, uh, often with participant observation, to gain a deep understanding of a group's uh, shared culture, conventions, uh, social dynamics, the word ethnography itself refers to the written report of the, the research. Autoethnography is like ethnography, but the particular community or experience is our own experiences or surroundings. Uh, so autoethnography is a research method where researchers examine themselves in relation to a particular phenomenon or topic. So the research presents a large component of the researcher's own experience and surroundings to be used as data and to analyze. Uh, this research model may be unpopular or considered as less scientific in many disciplines, including in psychology. But uh, some researchers, including myself, find it important because if we want to study an issue in depth, it would be good to get information from those who are directly involved uh, with the issue. Uh, and if the researchers themselves have specific experience about an issue that is not general, it makes sense to uh, systematically collect and analyze their experience to gain knowledge as well. For example, uh, being a humanitarian worker in working uh, in conflict areas, being a clinical psychologist who han who handles families who have lost family members due to the pandemic, for example, it makes sense that those who live with direct experience related to certain phenomena might examine themselves in the experience, provided that they have uh, good research skills. Uh, so when it is conducted properly and responsibly, I think an autoethnography tells us about not only the researcher's experiences, but it goes beyond that. It also tells about a specific phenomenon, a topic or a problematic issue in social life. I think that's autoethnography. It makes sense to me that, that we... We don't look at autoethnography or ethnography in general in psychology as very positive compared to quantitative research, but you have yeah. to know the community. Mm -hmm. You have to look at what's going on. We do a lot of social identity research and you have to work with the communities. We might not 
be doing kind of a full autoethnography, but we are communicating. And that's really important for us to be able to, to kind of maybe know certain things to study or maybe come up with different ideas that we wouldn't have without communicating with them. And, and so that kind of just shows that a lot of psychology is engaging in this process, even though we're not specifically doing ethnographic work or, or autoethnographic work where we're examining ourselves and we're examining the groups or, or the, the samples that we're looking at. Yeah. In your article, which I thoroughly enjoyed reading, um, it was very enlightening to what autoethnography is. We'll make sure that we link it. Um, you mentioned that there's a uh, emphasis on reflexivity with the research. Could you explain what reflexivity is and how, what's the benefit of being reflexive with our research? Yeah. Well, in qualitative research, we believe that reality is not a single reality. Uh, I mean, uh, when we talk together, three of us, we have different uh, opinion maybe about uh, the same issue. So pure objectivity is very difficult to achieve, but of course we try to, to pursue that objectivity. Uh, how people put meaning into their experience uh, make us realize that reality is multiple. Uh, so knowledge is always partial and involves a certain perspective. Uh, and it is impossible for us to, to understand the whole. So it is important for the researcher to have what we call reflexivity. Uh, by reflexivity, we mean uh, awareness of different construction of reality, like you in the US and myself in Indonesia, for example. So the researchers need to be aware of, of their background, such as socioeconomic class, religion, gender, sexual or orientation, interest maybe, to minimize uh, their biases. So reflexivity refers to our self-consciousness, actually, that we introspect. And when, when I listen to you, for example, I, 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 I ask questions to myself as well. Oh, why, why do you think that way? So self-dialogue of the researcher to come closer to objectivity. And when, so it is really to minim, minimal, to minimize our biases. Because if we are minimal with our bias, we will be able to be more open in capturing data and analyzing it. So reflexivity also refers to self-critic, actually. Uh, if you, if you interpret a situation your way, you have to ask yourself it. It is the a good way to interpret it, or do do I have an other explanation, for example? So it moves us to to a I don't know more complete understanding and knowledge and transformation. I think that's reflexivity. Thank you. So your your paper in particular, uh, kind of tries to touch upon, you know, the aspects, some of the, the, I guess, ways in which 
mainstream psychology kind of looks at autoethnography and kind of sets the mm -hmm. case for autoethnography as as a viable research option. Um, and it kind of ties into what, what you were just talking about with reducing bias and being more open and, and trying not to let kind of one's own view of the world, own reality, um, get in the way of, of trying to understand someone else. Um, so I, I guess with that, the, what are some of the major biases or I guess ethical considerations that kind of come up when conducting an autoethnography that, that one would have to be aware of or one should be aware of if they're interested in um, yeah, doing I think this kind of research? Yeah, I think it's a lot actually. <laughs> uh, maybe we have to understand first that from a qualitative research point of view, distance can present bias. I mean, uh, because you... A distance might uh, might keep the researcher to still using her perspective, right? Mm -hmm. So the conclusion is not representing reality as uh, as it is uh, the participant uh, uh, perceive. On the other hand, lack of distance also has its potential to represent bias. And of course, autoethnography lack of distance has really lack of distance. Since the researcher is studying her or his own experiences, and the researcher and the and those under study are the same subject, right? So it is, of course, the bias can be so so high. Uh, so there there are some I don't know th things that we need to be aware of. Bias might occur in auto ethnography when. What is depicted is an account of that the researcher wants to display. Like myself, I really want to display this. I, I really want to present a certain impression. The story might also cover up things that is important, but I would not like to share it to the public. So, so I can really, uh, try to choose what I would like to share and what, what I would like to not share. The storyteller is researching herself and of course uh it it is it can be having a bias whether it is intentional or not. Maybe I don't have the intention but still uh it is possible that the researcher chooses autoethnography not because she she realizes that she has a lot of stories uh, to share, to construct knowledge, but because she is not really unwilling to do her best to collect data sometimes. She is not that, that hard worker, maybe. Or, or maybe she, she makes some fabrications as well. Other important thing is that the researcher of uh, all of us, uh, 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 as researcher, we have a strong position of power as writer and storyteller. So we need to be aware of it and try to minimize exploiting our position uh, for our advantage, I think. Yeah. How do we keep the privacy of other people who are not the autoethnographer within that storytelling? 
So if you're writing about your work experiences, how do you de-identify your boss or your coworkers? Is that an ethical concern? Um, yeah, uh, it is a bit difficult. Uh, we, I don't think that we discuss it uh, comprehensively in our in our discussion. I think uh, it is better for all of us. For example, myself and and Polish Foundation to to tell us all that we are doing autoethnography that we would like to to this uh, we would like to document all the the experiences for example uh, and uh, then we try to to discuss within ourselves ethical consideration for example there are some persons who are who are i don't know uh not in a in a advantage position for example so we have to really try to discuss about that and try to find ways to really make it balance uh and if possible we try the we we try to to share the stories but try to make it not very obvious about the person just it, it is this is about uh, to to write but actually for uh ethical other ethical issues uh we we can have some i don't know some measures to to try to to come into ethical autoethnography for example when uh, when you do autoethnography you you still need to uh have various methods or data collection techniques for example uh various uh resource persons to ask uh, you have staff observation, you have diary recording, you have photographs, you, you discuss also with other persons from the, from, from outside the organization, for example. So to make it a more objective, mm -hmm. the researcher and the readers of autoethnography need to understand the limitation as well of, of uh, this kind of research. Because of course, it has limitation for its generalizability, but at the same time, it has potential also to evoke conceptual insights uh, and become stimulus for further intellectual discussion. For example, I went, uh, I go to Puli Foundation at uh, in Aceh, for example, and then I discussed with them. So it is the case of Pulih in Aceh uh, cannot be generalized to other NGO, for example, uh, in in post-conflict areas. But still, we have a lot things to further uh, to to what is it uh, for for further uh, intellectual discussion. Mm -hmm. I uh, well. I myself propose the need for technical measure to minimize possible shortcomings. 
So it is good. I think it is better if if you do autoethnography, you need to involve other people in analyzing your data in addition to yourself and maybe your friends. So maybe uh, someone from outside the, the organization can can really make it uh, better. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's it. It just sounds like it's just yet another way in which autoethnography is very similar to all the other research that we do. We're, we, we have to be kind of concerned about a lot of these yeah. ethical issues, biases, power dynamics. Yeah. And if you're not, your research kind of comes out poorer for it. Um, and so we're, we're kind of still dealing with a lot of the same, same discussions and same issues, but with a different focus um, in the research, essentially. Yeah. Yes. So I, I guess to, to highlight, um, you know, coming, coming on its 20 year anniversary, the, the Pooley Foundation, mm-hmm. um, can you share how uh, autoethnography is, is used um, in elements of your work with the foundation? Okay. Uh, since the beginning, when I was interested in doing research, I thought that a researcher was a part of the phenomenon she was studying, actually. So uh, I I thought also that we have specialty uh, or privilege sometimes uh, to know and have close converse, conversation, for example, with friends in Puli, whether in Jakarta or in Aceh. For example, in Puli, we, uh, we have uh, cases of gender-based violence in Aceh. We have lots of cases because they are survivors of conflict and they work to assist uh, post-conflict communities. So I think that that the experience can be well documented and analyzed. But at that time, I had not used the term autoethnography because I did not know that. Uh, after I read about uh, this autoethnography, I realized that what we did have the components of autoethnography. So right now, uh, my friends in Polish, so we have three offices actually. In, uh, in Jakarta, we have two offices and we have one in Aceh. We are trying to documenting our activities also for our next uh, birthday. So we currently conducting a series of interviews and discussion, a discussion among ourselves. So every Wednesday afternoon, I make time to meet with fellow workers on Zoom like this, either myself with one friend or in a small discussion groups to chat about various topics. Sometimes we, uh, so we use, uh, we, we, we discuss, for example, uh, issues of NGO organization and management about how psychology should work with other fields in the community movement and human rights. Because uh, psychology focuses more on recovery, right? And strengthening individual and communities. While friends from legal aid, for example, will focus themselves for legal justice. Sometimes it, it goes to different di- uh, direction. So we really uh, discuss about how, how can we who who focuses 
who focus on different direction can work together and learn from each other to find a common common vision as well. Uh, there is also discussion about challenges faced by humanitarian workers in carrying out uh, difficult, risky jobs, lots of conflicts with low remuneration usually. So how do we provide care for caregivers or care for humanitarian workers, whether we ourselves uh, experience, experience that burnout, uh, secondary trauma, etc. Uh, we would like to provide popular and academic writing from our experiences uh, and have its lessons learned uh, for the community. Uh, that's what we are now preparing. Sounds, sounds like it, it's a, a beneficial practice regardless of what field you're in. It, it, it seems like it offers a lot of opportunity for introspection, for self-reflection, mm -hmm. but to also pass on what you've learned or what the foundation has learned and, and the people who are a part of it, you know, back to the community or back to, you know, people who will kind of take up the mantle or, or run those aspects of the foundation in the future. And so it seems to be a, a really good way to build that kind of institutional knowledge. Yeah. As we near our end of the 30 minutes, I wanted to ask you what your recommendations would be mm -hmm. for students who are interested in pursuing autoethnography or incorporating autoethnographic elements into their research that they're already developing. Oh, okay. First, it must be realized that there are enough criticism of this autoethnography that we, that Maybe we are too busy to present ourselves, for example, that we are not really diligent to, to go to the field. Uh, so as I suggested in, in the paper I have written, it would be good if we had done data collection for other type of research before we conduct autoethnography to prove that we really have the ability and commitment in conducting quality research and we need to ensure uh, from our experience that if we would like to uh, to uh, do research on ourselves we can draw a story that is meaningful and relevant to the public to understand uh, for the development of knowledge and then we need to understand that uh, like we discussed before that this, that as we, that as researcher we have uh, power than other people, mm -hmm. uh, and that uh, in our autobiography research, because we have the opportunity to publish our research result, right? So mm -hmm. we we have to minimize our and I, I don't know uh, our need to take advantage. Uh, we need to do various ways to provide transparency and intersubjectivity. So we, we, we can find different ways of, of, of get, of collecting data, different data sources, different perspective and analysis. All of those, uh, are to minimize bias and to improve our quality of research. 
and then also it's it is good to involve other people and analyzing our data in uh, research for doctoral studies i think this rule can be implemented right because we because we have supervisor who can really help us to ensure the credibility and ethical steps of uh, our research and i think finally a student is still under the guidance of uh, his or her supervisor so it would be good to have an intensive discussion with the supervisor beforehand to determine whether autoethnography is the right choice for the study mm-hmm. i think that's that's it thank you so much i very much appreciate you uh sharing with us about this area of research and your expertise and um and for this article as well um i've learned quite a bit over the last couple of weeks that i had not been exposed to uh as a student mm-hmm. <laughs> yes thank you so much thomas and daniel thank thank you and, and definitely thank you again and uh congratulations on the 20 years in your foundation and may it continue thank you keep, so much keep doing good work all right Hello, and we want to welcome Dr. Katie Gillespie, uh, who's here to talk to us today about autoethnography, very specifically autoethnography across species, I guess would be the right way to say it. Um, So I I guess we'll we'll start with um, letting you kind of introduce a little bit about who you are, what your research interests are, and kind of tell tell our audience about yourself. Yeah, sure. Um, Thanks so much for having me. Uh, it's, it's great to be here. Um, so I'm a feminist geographer by training, um, and my work, uh, I guess, broadly speaking, focuses on the, the forms of harm and also care in everyday human-animal relationships. And so much of my work has focused on the lives and deaths of animals in the, in the food system. Um, and my book, The Cow with Your Tag 1389, um, explores the experiences of cows raised for dairy in the United States. Um, and that work was a multi, what I would consider a multi-species ethnography. Um, and I've been interested in and sort of practiced multi-species ethnography as a methodology in, in various forms throughout my career. Um, and so I'd be happy to, t- I mean, I think actually talking about autoethnography, um, in multi-species context necessitates talking about, um, multi-species ethnography. Um, so, um, but more recently I've been working on a kind of multi-species autoethnography um, and a book on that um, in my own backyard here in Seattle. That's very cool. Would you, uh, I found your work through your article from last year about your backyard chickens. Um, Could you talk us through autoethnography and multi-species autoethnography and what the story of that paper is? What brought you to writing that article and being interested in this topic? Yeah, sure. So, um, so let's see. I, uh, well, this, so, uh, so autoethnography is, um, an ethnography of the self. And, um, it's a bit odd to think about in terms of multi-species ethnography because the auto implies the human self. And so how, 
to sort of think about the human self and um, and decenter the human um, in as much as possible, or maybe not decenter the human, but include other species as sort of um, as uh, as actors, as as subjects in ethnography when when the center of of ethnography is is the auto human, um, and so. Uh, so that I think is just a fundamental challenge for one, um, in terms of, of thinking about autoethnography as a concept in, in multi-species research. Um, and so one of the things that is core to ethnography is often that you don't, I would say a, a lot of, a lot of times in, in autoethnography, you don't necessarily go into an experience thinking I'm going to research myself and my experience here, that there's a real, and that even if you do a lot of the sort of analytical or uh, kind of theoretical work you do is sort of retrospective. So you go through the experience and then you reflect back on it. Um, and so a lot of times autoethnography has moments of epiphany or, um, or, you know, real, uh, moments of change um, in in thought, in action, um, and but there's that sort of retrospective element. And so as I was starting to think about um, autoethnography in, in relation to this, well, what became this paper, um, I, I've thought a lot about uh, this experience I had raising backyard chickens um, in here in Seattle in my own little urban backyard. And I uh, my partner and I had bought um, chicks at a country feed store. Um, this was about, must have been about 15, 15 years ago or so, probably longer. And um, and we bought these chicks and it was this process of, you know, kind of what uh, people refer to as sort of urban homesteading, which as it turns out, has this kind of like settler colonial um, feel, feel to that, that phrase, but we weren't thinking about that at the time. Um, and so we raised these chickens in the backyard. And and so I was thinking about this in terms of multi-species ethnography um, and that many, many ethnographers um, in who do multi-species work think about it uh, or they um, they're not necessarily kind of interrogating the underlying um, kind of power relations or um, taking for granted assumptions about animals place in the world and sort of thinking critically and, and sort of radically about those um, in kind of radical different ways about those relationships. And so in, in thinking about this backyard chicken um, example uh, through a multi-species autoethnographic lens, there would be one way, one way of thinking about it would be, you know, to look at the fact that our neighborhood is rapidly gentrifying and that we're part of that and that this kind of urban homesteading um, kind of trend is is also part of that and and look at the sort of histories that that's embedded in um look at we could look at like um urban food justice initiatives and the you know urban agricultural production um in terms of both food, food security in um you know in inner city neighborhoods and also um in in terms of uh kind of returning agricultural production to to people um and it's sort of up in a more autonomous way. So there's lots of ways. And so then thinking about chickens as part of that, that, that often in these urban agricultural projects, um, chickens and um, increasingly goats uh, in Seattle here, for instance, um, ducks, even I see a lot of ducks are, you know, are being enrolled in these kind of urban agricultural projects. So that would be a way where you could think about, you know, I could think about my role in that process. I could include the chickens. I could center 
that experience of raising backyard chickens in that story. But it wouldn't necessarily get at the chickens themselves and their experience and all of the kind of taken for granted assumptions that I make about their place as one animals who are just sort of here for for us to use, for us to purchase, you know, that they are commodities that that I purchased them, that then I raise them sort of for my own um my own uh dietary preferences that that we wanted to to eat their eggs. Um and and so certainly there are, you know, there are things about living with with backyard chickens um that you know, certainly there there are relationships of kind of care and closeness, even, um, you know, if you are like raising chickens and eating their eggs. And I think we did have that when we were like actively, um, actively, you know, using them for food. Um, but, but there's, there is thinking through this, this multi-species auto ethnography lens and what it might look like to make that sort of explicitly anti-anthropocentric. So not just, um, not just kind of decentering myself in that, but also really taking seriously the structures of anthropocentrism that shape this kind of relationship, um, one of closeness, one of care, and and to think about how they're experiencing that and how how it might be different if, for instance, they weren't like I wasn't instrumentalizing them for um, for what they could produce. And so, yeah, so this is, sorry, that's a long, um, explanation, but, um, but yeah, I, you know, I think just this, this sort of shift in, in thinking. And so that retrospective aspect that these were all things I was not thinking about then, and that the sort of distance from that and that the reflection back on it can reveal like insights that, and, and that even, you know, 10 years from now, I may look back on that same um, experience and have sort of new, new insights, new epiphanies, um, and, uh, you know, and then think about how that kind of shapes the like scholarly or theoretical analysis around that. I think you, you touched upon this, uh, you know, kind of a little bit in your, your answer, but, um, what can you kind of see like for the reader or for the audience of, let's say, you know, the, the previous book that you've written or the uh, chicken book, uh, the, the, the autoethnography with, with backyard chickens, of sort of the value of using like an interspecies uh, autoethnography or an interspecies ethnography um, really has as kind of a research method and, and maybe maybe specifically in kind of getting that message across. Um, yeah, I think that, well, so there's, so one of the reasons to use kind of multi-species ethnography is because we live in in a multi-species world, and so the um, so to think about sort of a human-only ethnography um, is is a bit limiting in terms of just um, uh, sort of foreclosing a, a deeper analysis of of this multi-species world that we live in. And so I would I would actually argue that you know a lot of people who are doing what may seem to be human focused um, ethnographies may actually be quite multi-species because they're thinking about human animal relations, they're including um, you know they're including animals and and ecological systems in their analysis. And so there's a lot of gatekeeping I think that that happens around um, ethnography generally and also around multi-species ethnography. And 
one of the thing, one of the challenges in, um, in multi-species ethnography, especially in like the case of the dairy industry, for instance, is that like my um, aim going into that project was to understand the lives and experiences of cows in the dairy industry, and that that proved to be a really difficult project um, because to understand the life course of, for instance, a single cow um, is really nearly impossible. Um, I was one issue was around getting access to farms. Most farms, I found one farm that would allow me to come and visit, but um, that was just for a few hours for one day. And so from an ethnographic perspective, that's like so limited, right? Ethnography is about immersion. It's about um, really, you know, spending time. Um, and so, uh, and so what I found with this, um, and I've, I've sort of had a bit of an identity crisis over the last, I don't know, 10 years about this in terms of like, is this multi-species ethnography? Because what, what that resulted in was needing to patch together a, over a long period of time, a lot of moments in, um, in agricultural spaces. And, um, I sort of shied away from calling it ethnography for a while, and but now I'm 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 sort of doubling down on on the fact that this that in this multi-species context, sometimes those um, fractured moments are like in the life of a a cow, for instance, are it that's that's all we can get. So you know, I we have those moments at the at the dairy farm. There, you know, I ended up spending a lot of time in um, farmed animal auction yards, and those are like literally just moments with an animal seeing them pass through the ring. Um, and so, but if we're thinking about sort of culture, like ethnography as, as culture writing, um, and that there's, there's kind of this tapestry of these moments that can be woven together um, to kind of write this culture around, an, around animal agriculture, around the experiences of, of animals in animal agriculture. And so, Multi-species ethnography there would be about centering the animals themselves and really trying to understand their experience of this process. Um, if we think about a more human-focused ethnography, there's lots of those on agriculture, um, you know, on farmer livelihoods, on the practices of farming, on farming communities, um, on, you know, the industrialization of the food system and impact on farmers. Um, and so the multi-species ethnography, I would say, at least, you know, has this feature of of centering the animal and trying to understand um, their experience. And then the, the only other thing I wanted to say about that, I think, is, is that something gets revealed in what's possible in ethnography through the actual pr process of doing it. And I mean, um, or sorry, let's scratch that. Um, <laughs> Something, something gets revealed about the subject through the process of doing an ethnographic project that I wasn't expecting in the, in this dairy context. So for instance, this kind of fractured nature of the research itself, of having just these moments with, with, you know, hundreds of different animals, um, reflected the nature of commodification. And that that is a fracturing process. And so like at the heart of this project was really um, understanding the lives of cows in the dairy industry is understanding what it means to commodify a life. And that is, that's fracturing. It's, you know, in the case of dairy, it's um, cows, you know, being artificially inseminated and then giving birth and they're 
uh, that cow-calf relationship is severed immediately when the calves are, are removed. They're, um, you know, separated from their herds once they're, you know, at, at various points in the, in the dairy production process. Um, there's, there's not an arc, um, of a, a sort of continuous arc of a cow's life that is sort of uninterrupted by this commodification process. So there's something interesting methodologically there, I think, in terms of like what, like what that kind of challenge, methodological challenge revealed about the nature of, of commodification of what, what it was I was, I was studying. That's fascinating. Um, one of the questions I had, and you brought this up briefly with the lack of access to the animals and then discovering that that lack of access and that fracturing and commodification occurs. How do you approach um, pursuing this methodology? So I'm thinking of perhaps one of my psychology students wanting to pursue a multi-species uh, eth ethnography. How do you begin to chart out this path? Because it sounds like it's an ever-evolving interpretation of the data as you come into contact with it. It is, yeah, and the and and the the data shapes the shapes the sort of um, evolve, evolving methodology. I think you know I think it's uh, it's definitely shaped like my longer term trajectory in terms of the kinds of spaces I know I can access, and so um, I the the book manuscript I just finished is in multi species autoethnography, and and I can tell you about that in a little bit, but. Um, but the a book I'm starting now is on returning to the auction yard um, as a really publicly accessible space and really digging into different kinds of farmed animal auctions, not just cows, but um, bird auctions. Um, I'm hoping to see some um, bison auctions in um, South Dakota and um, Kansas. And um, and so it, there's a way that like, that just try, sort of trying to follow publicly accessible spaces um and you know i think one of the things that that i'm always interested in is is kind of like making the familiar strange so we don't have to seek out anything extraordinary any kind of extraordinary places to understand really kind of poignant important things about the way um the world functions um and so so i think in terms of just like shaping the kinds of of places um that's that's one one thing that the sort of trouble of of access has has led to um am i getting at your question i think so it sounds like you start for uh at least if i were advising a grad student who was interested in this uh, uh genre of research to start with places that we take for granted and make them strange and start looking at how they represent issues and facilitate issues in our uh cultural economic lives. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think also the um, one of the things that that kind of got me stuck a bit as a grad student doing my district, the um, cow project was the dissertation, my dissertation, um, was that I was following what other people had done who had done ethnographies of animal agriculture. And so I had initially proposed um, getting a job at a dairy farm in the Pacific Northwest and working there for an extended period of time. And um, that would, uh, well, one one option was, I had initially contacted people and asked if I could 
um, you know, come and volunteer and work. And I didn't get any responses. So then came up the question of, of, um, of not disclosing my position as a researcher, which Timothy Patrat for every 12 seconds, um, his, his book, which was his dissertation, um, he went undercover in a slaughterhouse. Um, I think it was Steve Striffler in uh, his book, Chicken, same thing. And so there was this established, um, established kind of tradition of, of doing that and of like this particular kind of research necessitating that. And the university was like, absolutely not that like opens us up to like huge liability. And so I was really, you know, kind of at that point panicking, trying to figure out, well, how am I going to like do this project? And that caused a lot of angst. Um, and also it, um, the sort of gatekeeping around ethnography that I mentioned before, um, I think there was this, especially with ethnography as a, as a methodology, there's this sense of like, this is what I have to do, this like established tradition of, you know, a year in a place of like really um, like immersing myself in in this, of taking part of, you know, whatever, however, however it's conceptualized. Um, and, and so I think like, especially with the multi-species ethnography, I think sort of thinking against that not that it has to be against against that but thinking kind of against the grain um with like what other kinds of possibilities there are um multi-species ethnography just requires a lot of creativity um because of the challenges of i mean there's all these challenges of one just understanding another animal's experience not to mention like how to craft a whole project around like access to spaces um you know uh, knowledge enough about a particular species to try to understand what what we're seeing, how how you know how these relationships are unfolding. Um, so yeah, there are lots of lots of issues, but I think because it's a newer methodology, there's a lot of room for kind of um, careful experimentation. I hesitate to even use the word experimentation because I think that could be kind of calls up. Uh, animals and biomedical research and mm -hmm. has its own huge um ethical uh problems um mm -hmm. and so but 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 to the extent that 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 a kind of um like experimental approach to ethnography can be done with care and with the well-being and and sort of ethical orientation around animals well-being being at the center of the project I think that that would be part of my advice would be that this is that we shouldn't necessarily think about it as like either the established tradition. Right, right. Um, as we near the end of our time, would you like to share with us about your books and tell us about what's going on with your projects and where we can follow you and keep up with your work? Sure. Yeah. The um the this recent project that I'm I just finished the the manuscript for is uh, called the Sound of Feathers: Haunting and Bearing Witness in Multi-Species Worlds. And so um it's an it's a multi-species autoethnography. Um, one of the uh kind of driving uh, aims with the book is was to understand my own life in the sort of geography of the closest in. So in my own backyard and in my neighborhood, um, which is Beacon Hill and Seattle, in Seattle as a city in the Pacific Northwest. And so um, there's each chapter looks at a different um, 
kind of human animal encounter. So the chickens are one chapter and that's kind of tangled up with um, killing actually quite a lot of um, rats as a result of the chicken food attracting rats and it being a sort of complex um, kind of neighbor neighborhood conflict. Um, so there was, there's that. Um, one is actually in the, um, the auction, goes to I go to the auction yard um, to a farmed animal or farmed bird auction yard um, and actually that's the one with the chickens it's connecting the the backyard chickens to to the birds in this in this auction yard the rats is about gentrification and um, and you know I haven't looked at it in a few months um, yeah so and then the experience of encountering um, animals killed on roads is another these kind of like everyday um, encounters. Um, I live with three beagles from biomedical research and so it's actually in the kind of geography of my home and those relationships that reveal things about um, the reality of biomedical research involving animals, those histories, and so there's like these each of these kind of contemporary interactions um, with other species reveals these deeper histories and this kind of like making the familiar strange, like what is it to look at a road, for instance, which is probably one of the most mundane features of the landscape and to see it as like a technology of violence that links, you know, our driving today to the histories of the construction of the ro roads to begin with and um, and the railroad and all of that. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's kind of trying to like, like unpick all these um, little day-to-day -day actions and to do that through this kind of autoethnographic lens. Uh, yeah, and I have a website, kazmanegalesky.com, and um, my writings are on there, and I'd love to hear from anyone, uh, grad students, any any listeners, um, if, if you'd like to chat. Um, Definitely yeah, link and, it in our description. <laughs> absolutely. So I, yeah, I guess, thank you again for talking with us. Um, we, we want to be mindful of your time. And so um, thank you so much. Yes, thank oh, you yeah. so much. And we're back. And we're back. Suddenly. <laughs> Time doesn't exist. No. Time is a social construct. It is. And we can manipulate it in uh, media editing software. Yeah. Good old audacity. Good old audacity. <laughs> so what did you think? What did you learn? I am absolutely floored by these, these interviews. They were so enlightening and i just have been thinking about them ever since we did them like they've been haunting my dreams in a good way in a bad way <laughs> but also a good way I, there's just so much to unpack yes um i don't even know where to start <laughs> maybe you I could start the first surprise i had was that when i was doing autoethnography research like not actually doing the research but reading the research um, I kind of took this very surface level, like, 
auto always means the self approach and so that's kind of how I went into these interviews was just kind of like okay auto means the self so it's the researcher talking about themselves and that's I saw a good deal of research that was that but with both of these scholars I got the sense that autoethnography the auto can refer to the collective as well so the you know the Pooley Foundation which works with uh post-conflict zones it's about that organization and all the people within it as a single organism reflecting on itself, which I thought was very cool. And then uh, I loved Gillespie's making the ordinary strange. Yeah, it, it's, it's again, that good bridge with, I think a lot of the work that we do and like, we're just, we're just kind of looking at it in a different way. And so when we study groups, we're studying it as the outsider. And in this case, it's studying groups as an insider. And I think mm-hmm. as someone who does fan research, it maybe makes me a little more comfortable to maybe call myself a fan of something because if as long as I'm as long as I'm 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 keeping that ethical mindset mm-hmm. that there's there is an aspect of maybe the questions we decide and the way that we kind of approach the community and we engage with these communities as, as especially if, if we are a part of it in some way, very autoethnographic that, that we're, we're definitely kind of taking our own experiences as part of this. Right. We just don't necessarily make it uh, as explicit as an autoethnography in that right. way. It's right. not a narrative, but there is, there is right. a small bit of that like ethos and practice within it. Um, Cause yeah. we've talked before that we are, we tend to be very high on like fanship things, but yes. not necessarily fandom things. Yeah. And so I was also thinking about like the work with the furries, like I it's work with the furries. It's not, I am a furry doing the work. Right. Right. But we, we do have colleagues who are both. Yes. Who do work with the furries and they are a furry. <laughs> right. And so I think uh, I, we need to tell them that they need to write an autoethnography because like yeah definitely first science has been going on for a long time and that would be a very cool autoethnography to read yeah even about the group even mm-hmm. even about the process i mean like i'm i'm almost wondering if, if it might not be a good idea to sit back and write a telling of we kind of have done this like at the beginning little intro chapters of like the books that we've written about the fan communities where we we're like this is who we are and this is how we got our start and this is how it all began. And like, there's definitely an auto uh, ethnographic aspect of that where we're, we're kind of laying out, this is the process on how this came to be. Mm-hmm. And so like yet again, another example of how we're not really that detached from this research, even though I would argue this is, it's very stigmatizing in psychology, mm-hmm. but that we're not going to look at this as quote unquote mainstream. Right. And that's, I think that was the big lesson from Dr. Palandari was this uh, reflexivity of research and how important it is that we acknowledge who we are in this whole system of research mm-hmm. that's being conducted. I thought that was very, uh, something that you don't hear a lot about in methods classes that I'm really glad that we got to talk about and unpack a little bit uh, in this episode. Yeah, and, and it, it's definitely important to communicate with people that you're doing research with and to get these feedback questions. Something I learned really early on is to just include like, is there anything you'd like to tell us? Like we want feedback from you. And it's because Mm -hmm. being able to be a little adaptive and being able to kind of work with those communities, you you benefit by Mm -hmm. having 
those broader qualitative dialogues with them. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, and then with Dr. Gillespie, this is the uh, haunting bit, but when she spoke about the fragmentation of commodification, that's been following me around quite a bit. Because it reminds me yeah. kind of similar to the last episode when uh, looking at the, the these episodes are getting like meshed in with my personality class. Um, I was thinking about like the idea of like your personality shifts depending on the groups you're in. But a lot of the times the groups that you're in, you're also the, a commodity within those groups, right? So like if it's your fan group, for example, you're part of a group of people with this particular personality like constellation that then makes money for other people. And then that's like a slice of your life. And then you're a completely different person at work. And that's like a slice of your life. And like people think in those contexts, think that they see you as a holistic person, but they don't. So they get the illusion of personality. Right. It, it's it's like the people who step into my office and they see like the stuffed animal behind my desk and my Legos and mm-hmm. my all my fan art hanging on the wall. And they're like, oh, hello. <laughs> suddenly <laughs> there's this like, wait a second. This isn't like, or you're like a student comes in and they're like, wait a second. This isn't the same person that's been teaching me for like half a semester. Right. No. And I'm sure it's particularly just like associating because like they move from your like statistics course where it's like, oh my God, I have to learn statistics. This is the math teacher, blah, blah, blah. And then they go in and they see your uh, My Little Pony stuffed animals. And then, yeah, no, it's, it's hilarious, but also it makes me wonder about our last episode a little bit about can we ever really see the holistic human? Yeah. Um, and I, you know, maybe with enough of a deep dive. Yeah. And and maybe something like autoethnography is where we get some of that because it's going to take that person to maybe tell us. Mm-hmm. And if more of us were kind of sharing ourselves or sharing our groups and communities, we might be able to understand some of that, that kind of holistic, the holistic other. Mm-hmm. Um, i trying to think if there was, like, these. this was... Like the psychobiography was enlightening and fun and interesting and it like scratched my curiosity. The autoethnography was like deeply penetrating. It was heavy. Um, it was I, very heavy. I would say that um, it was very hard to think of follow-ups with Dr. Gillespie because it was just a lot to take in. It was a lot. And I am... I want more. <laughs> I'm just, I'm really upset that the internet crashed on us. Uh, yes. Because I believe we can get her books. <laughs> that's true. And and I definitely want to deep dive into that. I definitely like the idea of trying to kind of cross this divide, uh, you know, between you know, kind of the, the interspecies autoethnography, because we do exist with other animals mm-hmm. in this world. You know, it makes me think of my relationship with my dog at home or, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, a pet. And how, what role that pet serves for, and like, I mean, I'm trying to figure that out with my dog, because she just kind of keeps to herself, and she hates everyone. Um, mm-hmm. and she likes me, and so, like, there's a companionship aspect, and, you know, even if my, even if it's my role, like, of, mm-hmm. of, of being the caretaker, and, and being there, you know, for, for the, this, this rescue animal that we've had, like, it makes me think about that. 
um, mm-hmm. and the relationship because like I've done backyard chickens mm-hmm. in the past, and I miss I miss miss those chickens, even the angry rooster mm-hmm. that we had. And it but it makes me think again of that relationship, and 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 whatnot. And then even further, like we get even more complex when we're talking about not auto ethnography, but just straight up ethnography uh, mm-hmm. of of like the cattle industry and like the difficulties and the research, you know, the, the kind of methodology behind that mm-hmm. is just it's so much yeah i was I, I really liked i think uh dr gillespie really like when we talked about uh reflexivity with uh Pawandari, i think gillespie like nailed that in hardcore um just thinking about you know it's not just that the looking at that relationship between herself and the backyard chickens or like you and your dog but like in her article, she goes through how we've been like selectively breeding chickens for maximum egg output and that it like wrecks their metabolism and nutrient levels. Yeah. And like, that's something that she and anyone who does backyard chickens are not personally responsible for, but we're still participating in that system of like eugenics with chickens <laughs> yeah. or eugenics with dogs. Yeah. And so I'm, looking at those like bigger, darker, swirling clouds overhead, I thought it was like, oh shoot, I like cannot look at backyard chickens the same way again. I, I you know, it'd be really interesting like thinking about it with dogs because there are like dog breeders who are trying to sort of fix. And I mean, I don't want to say it sounds worse, but to, to basically like return some some dogs who have been bred for a specific look to a healthier state. So especially mm-hmm. things like pugs um, or um, like some some variations of bulldog where they have these like severe sinus and, and other issues that, that they mm-hmm. can live in pain because of it. Um, and they're trying to breed that stuff like they're, they're trying to say like, all right, like, let's 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 see if we could take a couple of steps back mm-hmm. genetically and, and basically breed a healthier, happier animal. And so, mm-hmm. you know, if we are going to be responsible pet owners, part of that is making sure we're not, you know, breeding the best dog to look at to be best in show that we're also going to have this dog in pain for most of its life. Right. Right. Because the shifting in breeding has changed from like utility, like the dog needs to be healthy, sturdy, lives a long, healthy lifestyle because it's a part of the unit within your you know, farm or community to now it's a aesthetic show dog for Instagram. Right. And so priorities changed to the detriment of the uh, well-being of the other species. So (laughs) heavy, heavy. (laughs) I I will say on another note, it was really, it was really um, insightful to get a lot of, um, Dr. Korindari, you know, kind of touched upon some aspects of like, like considerations and whatnot. And then mm-hmm. again, Dr. Gillespie kind of built on that with, with talking about her, uh, her work with the cattle industry and these, these roadblocks that get in mm-hmm. the way. And I think that's a, a really good lesson for most researchers is that you're always going to come into these roadblocks and you have to kind of think, all right, what is the way to deal with that? So if the farmer is not letting you on their property for a long amount of time, or you can't make it into a main cattle industry unless you're secretly getting a job and then right. <laughs> working with them for six months undercover 
which is a normal practice because you're you're shining light on some of these really dark aspects of like how mm-hmm. we do we do business um of, of being able to say all right you know let's take a step back and where can i get access and so like catalog right but also is it i was kind of horrified at how closed off those areas are because like even as like a lay public wouldn't be able to get in but you would think that you would have enough social capital as a university researcher to get in i would argue even less if if they again they don't want you to know what they're doing (laughs) right and so like there was a really like horrifying realization of like spaces that should be we have access to that we don't have access to i was like wait a second no you're right i don't have access to a lot of things think about that like if i decided i wanted to do an autoethnography or an, an ethnographic study with like like a wall street firm yeah you would not be allowed to do that it would be very very difficult um i like we have trouble just doing regular studies with fan communities Mm-hmm. Um, in some cases, because there's there's a worry and a concern about like how psychologists have looked at them in the past. Um, mm-hmm. But but yeah, that that and like, that one's more reasonable. But yeah, because of the history, big ag not wanting us to like know what's going on to, with those cows. I'm like, yeah, okay, yeah. we should be allowed in there. So it was a bit horrifying and heavy. I loved it. I, I ate it up. I thought it was super fascinating and I learned so much and I greatly appreciate Dr. Powandari and Gillespie for joining us and educating us and sharing their work. I just was just, you know, knowledge is not always fun. <laughs> <laughs> that needs to be the theme of our season. <laughs> knowledge is not always fun. <laughs> Sometimes research methods is a little dry. Sometimes it gets a little scary if you're, <laughs> depending on what you're researching. Right. So. Sometimes it is fun. But no, I was, it, this left me very contemplative um, in the best way. So, haunted by a friendly ghost. So, I guess to end our discussion, I will, I will pick up on part two of our bias of the week. Huzzah! Our, our Wolf 1921 bias of the week. So it typically pairs with sharpening, which we talked about last week. Mm-hmm. Uh, this week it's leveling. Leveling. And leveling is the tendency to omit inconsistencies, condense elements, or simplify in general recalled stories. Oh... And again, I was thinking about this, uh, you know, where, where I think sharpening maybe touched upon a little bit what we talk about in, in psychobiography. Leveling, um, I think, gets into some of this autoethnography research because, mm-hmm. you know, we again, we want to give this holistic picture of the group or the self. And especially if you're doing a very personal autoethnography, maybe that's something you, you want to make sure you include mm-hmm. those inconsistencies. You include those those elements that you might want to shy away from. If you have to be a little honest mm-hmm. and that could be really tough yeah for some researchers to do yes and i think both of our researchers in this episode touched on this beautifully so dr powandari talked about making sure other people read your ethnographies right and so you get that outside perspective to make sure you're not just like 
talking you know bragging about yourself through the whole thing yeah right i'll just stroke in your ego stuff. yeah and then reading dr gillespie's article i was just like watching her work through what it means to backyard chickens where she was gave herself room and permission to have multiple opinions and grow and change and at the end of the article she was like i may look back on this after 10 years and have a completely different opinion about this but this is where i'm at right now and i that was very refreshing and i loved getting to watch her process going through that it would be it would be fascinating like it makes me think of like how how beneficial it could be if we were publishing more stuff of just about the process mm-hmm. about about people's thoughts about people being very candid um about the research process and about what they're doing and why they're doing it and to be really really mindful um i guess might be the best term for it there's this high mm-hmm. level of introspection this high level of of mindful awareness about what you're doing thinking mm-hmm. metacognitive awareness of of what you're doing and to summon the uh great Tara Bravazon per usual she encourages all of her PhD students to podcast their way through their dissertations and so you weekly podcast what you've been reading what you've been writing what problems you've been having and uh they she has them embed those episodes into the actual doc digital document of the dissertation and then it verifies authenticity that the work is the candidates that's really cool that's very cool i did not think about it as an autoethnographic practice of doing a dissertation but it most certainly is every one of her students should write up an autoethnography of their work it, I mean, they record it, and it's in the dissertation, so it already exists. It already exists. Like, yeah, it's just sonic instead of uh, written. Yeah. So that's a. I, I am terribly sorry for my future master's students, but I think you just found the seed of all evil in your life. <laughs> well. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, a, a, a huge shout out because maybe I didn't do this last week, but a huge shout out to to our guests. A big yes. thank you um, to everyone who's joined us, and and thank you for listening. Um, Absolutely. Hope, hope this was enjoyable, um, and and we'll have a lot of additional links uh, and whatnot for for you to reach out to to everyone involved in these last two weeks if if you're interested mm-hmm. in more. And, you know, feel free, again, reach out to us if, if you want to know more as well. If you have any questions. Absolutely. So, I got to start self-promoting. We really do. We're so bad at that. But also, podcast listeners, like, we just hang out in their life while they're washing dishes. Like, we're not, like, YouTubers, so. Yeah, we don't really care if you smash that like button. There is no like button to like. <laughs> right. So, so, on that note, we'll say goodbye. Talk to you later.